0: As the wise men sought out the Christ child and worshipped him, so let us worship him by hearing the peace and salvation he has brought us. Amen. Our text for our sermon is 1 Samuel chapter 3 verses 8 through 10. The Lord called Samuel for the third time. So he got up and went to Eli and said, I am here since you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the young man. So Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down. And if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and once again lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there and called as he had the other times. Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. This is the word of our Lord. It's amazing to think this is Christ before He took on human flesh talking to Samuel. And He has an important message. Whenever God talks to a human being, there's something big going on. It happens rare in history that He comes and directly does that like today. And in fact, we're told the very message that He gave to that uh, probably about 12-year-old Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 11 through 14, we're told, The Lord said to Samuel, Look, I'm going to do something in Israel that will make both ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. On that day, I'm going to carry out against Eli everything that I have spoken against his house from beginning to end. I have told him that I'm going to judge his house forever because of their guilty behavior, which he knew about. This will happen because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not restrain them. I have sworn to the house of Eli that the guilt of Eli's house shall never be atoned for with sacrifice or offering. Now, remember, Samuel had been dedicated since he was a very uh, young child to the temple. And Eli had been kind of a father for, figure for him, although Samuel knew his real father and mother. So imagine how Samuel thought right after being given this message. Your father figure, uh, things are going to go bad for him. and It's my judgment against him and his household. Why did I say, speak, O Lord, your servant is listening? Now, obviously, a believer doesn't quite think that way, but... There were some bad things going on. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, we're told the sons of Eli were wicked scoundrels. They did not know the Lord. So what was going on is Eli was the high priest. This is kind of the trailer park days of the temple. The temple had not been built in Jerusalem. It was no longer the tabernacle. It was somewhere in between, and it was in Shiloh. And Eli's the head priest, and he's really old, so his sons are priests. And when people come to bring their sacrifices for the Lord, remember, the priest got a portion of the sacrifice to feed himself and his family. Well, his sons would just come along with a meat fork and take the T-bone steaks that they wanted and stuff. Imagine seeing a servant of the Lord who's supposed to represent God, supposed to be your intercessor, showing such greed, and actually that would show disdain for the word of God. And God had even warned Eli, you better reign your sons in. And Eli was a believer. But Eli did not reign his sons in. And so we're told after that morning when Samuel, uh, when everybody woke up in First Samuel 3 verses 17 through 18, Eli said, what is the message he has spoken to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God punish you severely and double it if you hide from me one word of all the things that he spoke to you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do whatever is good in his eyes. Eli was certainly willing to accept the will of the Lord, but he wasn't willing to discipline his children. Eli was a believer. Ultimately, what happens, his son's names are Hophni and Phinehas. In a battle against the Philistines, the Israelites are losing and they decide to send for the ark. And Hophni and Phinehas carry the ark into battle. But the Philistines were God's chastening rod. They killed Hophni and Phinehas and they captured the Ark. Now, eventually, uh, God will end up having them send it back unharmed. The Philistines get tumors when they're they're around it. But a messenger goes running by, uh, and at Shiloh, Eli's sitting outside the city gates and asks for the news, and he's told his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed in battle. Then he's told that the Ark had been captured. He falls over backwards. Eli is a very overweight man. And in the fall over backwards at the startling news that the ark had been captured, Eli accidentally breaks his own neck. Now, Hophni and Phinehas would have gone to hell because they did not know the Lord. That means they weren't believers, even though every day they served in the temple. Just like Cain, he knew the Lord, but he didn't believe in God's grace. And so you wonder, did Eli, before he fell and broke his neck, did he ever regret giving Samuel the advice to say, Speak, O Lord, for your servant is listening? Well, God was going to speak to Samuel anyways. And that's what we do when we open up scripture, isn't it? We say, speak, O Lord, for your servant is listening. But do we really say that? We have a new person, but we have a sinful nature. Sometimes our sinful nature wants to say, Lord, you listen up, I'm speaking, not speak, O Lord, I'm listening. So if we look at our context where Eli's adult children, they were were adult men at this time, where he never disciplined them, never told them you got to knock it off. We can apply that to ourselves. What happens when our children become adults? Are we willing to say, Speak, O Lord, for your servant is listening? Do we say, If I tell my child, You better get to church, or you have embraced a sin, you're living in it, and it's going to squeeze the Holy Spirit out of your heart. They'll never talk to me again. They'll be mad at me. And so therefore, I'm just going to zip my lip. Sometimes if we truly love them, we recognize it's better that we speak up and have them not talk to us in this life than that they spend an eternity burning in hell because we did not love them enough to say what you're doing is going to drive the Holy Spirit out of your heart. Now, yours truly can still remember the day when I worked a night shift and my dad came knocking on my door and said, Get up. You're an adult man. You need to get to church. He was willing to make that risk. And sometimes it's not easy. Oh, but isn't it easy for us to turn around and condemn our neighbor? Our neighbor's adult children are misbehaving. But are we willing to come to them in Christian love and say, how can I help you? How can I talk to your adult children and say, what you're doing is going to drive the Holy Spirit out of our heart? In fact, lots of times we can see it even with children. Our brother sister in Christ's little children, not adult children, they're young children, where we can turn around and be upset because maybe they need to take them out of church and paddle them, or maybe they need to be quiet. How often are we willing to show Christian love and help them? I always remember when I was in middle school and my confirmation pastor, he had three kids, and the youngest was a very hyper uh, child. He, He was actually a good kid, he was hyper. And I always remember the elderly couple, that kid would have been they were old enough to be grandparents and great-grandparents, that every Sunday, because pastor's wife was a single mom in the pew, they would have pastor's son sit with them and were surrogate grandparents. They weren't just going to sit back and say, "That kid is kind of hyper and hard to control. They were brothers and sisters in Christ and set an example that obviously stays with me to this day. So are we willing to say, "Speak, O Lord, for your servant is listening? when he calls us to help our neighbor, with whether it be their adult children or their children. Ah, But you know, another difficult one, let's admit it, is when our neighbor sins against us. What does God tell us we are to do when we think our neighbor has sinned against us? Complain and backstab them to everybody at work? Turn all of our co-workers against them? paste it on Facebook or whatever, social media, send text to everybody else, turn a congregation against them with our belly aching? Speak, O Lord, for your servant is listening. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus tells us, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. And you know, the amazing thing is what often happens, you know, today we can send a text, and we can mean something very positive by it, and somebody else could read an emotion we didn't have and take it very negative. Lots of times, if we go privately and talk to our brother or sister who we think has sinned against us, we may just come and find out that they had not sinned against us, and we were sinning against them, and we were also sinning against them by assuming they had sinned against us. It's not so easy to say, speak, O Lord, for your servant is listening. Ah, but when we do... We hear that God did not take on human flesh as an adult man. He took on human flesh as a child. And even as a child, he was the perfect child, if you will. The only time he ever disobeyed his parents was when their will trumped God the Father's will. Then he rightfully followed God the Father's will. He did that perfectly for you and I. The same thing can be said for him as an adult child. Even on the cross, he looks out and asks his best friend, to take care of his mother. Because Jesus was the oldest in the family. That would have been his responsibility normally. And yes. Jesus always gently, kindly, lovingly pointed out their bro- his brother's sins against him. For you and I in our place. And won the salvation for us. Jesus told his disciples. If you're going to follow me. You have to take up your cross and follow me. They weren't listening so well the night he was arrested. And they ran in fear. But later, they would listen. All of them but John would give up their lives for that. John is the only one to die of natural causes, and he in his 90s would be exiled on the island of Patmos where God would inspire him to write the book of Revelation for us. Primarily, when Jesus talks about bearing crosses, he's talking about being hated for being his disciple, for being one of his little lambs. And isn't it difficult today where we're so busy, our society is busy persecuting people for being what they consider politically incorrect. Isn't it easy for us to say, I'm just going to keep quiet so that we don't get persecuted? And what happens? Crosses can also be health issues, issues at work, things like that. What happens when God allows hardships to come upon us? Are we willing to hear those words recorded in Romans chapter 8? We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him? Or do we scream because the splinters are digging into us? Because the hardship is too much? Do we cry and ache before the Lord? It is amazing that Jesus Christ, the spokesman for the Trinity, came and he bore the real cross for us, literally came out the back door of Jerusalem with it on his back, only to be nailed to it a few minutes later. He did that to forgive us. And it's in light of that that suddenly we come to recognize that when God allows hardships to come upon us, it's for our good, and sometimes it's not for our good. Sometimes it's for the good of our neighbor. I've told you before, if it was not for health issues and a few other hardships that the Lord allowed in my life, I would not be the pastor filling this pulpit today. Those hardships were for you. So we want to remember that, yes, we certainly, if we can fix a hardship, fix it. But we also want to remember not to grumble too much about them because God is using them for our good and for our neighbor. And we can be sure of that because he bore the real cross for us. And in fact, because of the new person the Holy Spirit has created in our heart, we are united to Christ in a mystical union, which Paul described for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, our epistle lesson today. That means when you are feeling pain, you're connected to Christ, Jesus feels your pain. He felt physical pain on the cross. He knew the pains of hunger and things like that. He would not let you experience that pain that he himself also feels unless the good that was come about it would trump that hardship. And so we say, speak, O Lord, show me how I can glorify you while bearing this cross because you bore the big cross for me. But when we talk about saying, speak, O Lord, for your servant is listening, let's admit it, that first and foremost for us is going to apply to hearing the word of God. Do we really listen to the word of God and dig into it? Because we have a sinful nature and lots of times, the first place where we immediately have a problem hearing the word of God is the sermon itself. Pastor's boring. Pastors dry as toast. Pastors too animated. One of the worst sermon deliveries I ever heard in my life was one of the most influential pastors I had. God had just not gifted him that way. But I learned to take notes. In fact, sometimes I can still get him to send me a sermon that he wrote, and I found the man was extremely gifted at applying the Word of God and comforting it. Did God give him the gift for a fantastic delivery? No. Did God give him the gift to dig into his word and apply it? Yes. It's easy for our attention span to wander during the sermon, and I'm telling you, when it comes to listening to a sermon, I have the attention span of a gerbil. Anybody who knows me will tell you, the only reason I can pay attention to 100% of a sermon is because I'm the one delivering it. But there's also a point where sometimes we can miss that our attention isn't wandering the way we think it is. Sometimes when we're hearing that sermon, an application or something clicks with us and we're thinking about that and think about its application or its application in our lives or to our neighbor and suddenly the sermon's over. You know what? That's the Holy Spirit working. It's not so easy to open up the Word of God and dig in and and suddenly we're grabbing our sinful nature, putting it in a headlock and saying, look at you! You deserve hell! But until we're willing to do that and our sinful nature hates it until we're willing to beat it, We're not going to hear the great news that God knew we could not save ourselves and that we deserved hell, and so He took on human flesh. And He did all the work to save us. But when we dig into the Word of God, when we learn it so that we can apply it to ourselves and to our neighbors, it's a razor's edge to stand on that balance between the the bright application of the law and the gospel. And one side we fall on is called legalism, and the other side we fall on is called antinomianism. What is legalism? Legalism is when we know the commandments or a certain law in the Bible and we make people think, we we, we proclaim that as if their salvation depends on it instead of Christ who kept all the law for us. Now, one of the perfect examples of that in Scripture is the entire epistle to the people in Galatia. After Paul had been there, some people came and said, Yeah, Paul's right. Jesus did all the work to save you, except for one little act of the law, you men. You men have to be circumcised or else you'll be condemned. And suddenly their salvation depended on a very painful procedure that only took a few seconds. Suddenly salvation was ripped out of Christ's hands and put in your hands. Legalists are, blight, are the Pharisees who know the rules... And they will pick their pet rule and they will insist on it as if your salvation depends on it instead of Jesus Christ or your salvation depends 90% on Christ but 10% on your keeping that law. And you know the amazing thing is that sinful nature in us, it's a little Pharisee. And boy, do we love the rules. We love those rules and we're going to enforce them even if they're not in the Scriptures. Even if Christ has fulfilled them. And in the same way, we can look down at our neighbor's sin. And because we don't struggle with that sin, we can condemn them lovelessly while ignoring our own. You've heard me call them pet sins. Every one of us has sins that our sinful nature, it's really good at committing. And our new man often has a hard time holding that sinful nature in the headlock and keeping it at bay because it gets its sucker punches in. When I'm ready to condemn somebody else for a sin that I don't struggle with, I just remember the ones that I do. And again... Christ was the perfect one at knowing we need the law to show us our sin, but showing us the law doesn't save us, and then showing us that He did the work to save us. So we gotta, we've got to set aside our own list of rules, our own legalism, and say, Speak, O Savior, I'm listening to you. Now the other side of that razor blade is antinomianism. That's a big word. It basically is the concept of recognizing Christ kept the law perfectly for me, so then we turn around and reason, Therefore, the law does not apply at all in my life. The law does not apply as a means of salvation. And the perfect example of that happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where a man has reasoned that because Christ has set him free and the law no longer damns him and the law is not a means of salvation, he has reasoned that he's perfectly fine to have sexual intercourse with his stepmother and run around town bragging about it. And as the Apostle Paul says, even the pagans know better than that. But see, that is using salvation in Christ as an excuse to embrace sin. And Christianity as a whole in the industrialized world today is doing this under the term love. I know that God's word condemns me embracing, insert whatever sin you're talking about, but God loves me. Yes, Christ did the work to save us. But God is still holy, and the law spells out what holiness is. And so we have to be careful that we don't turn around and use the good news of salvation in Christ to trump God's holiness and act as if we can live as if there's no laws whatsoever. Keeping the law does not save us. Because we're saved, we want to glorify God, and the Ten Commandments become ten thank yous. Now, we can apply legalism and antinomianism to the fellowship doctrine, right? Legalist, and I've had to clean this up as a pastor, where somebody makes it sound like, if you don't belong to the Wisconsin Synod, then you are going to hell. The truth of the matter is, any friend we have who belongs to a congregation that's teaching God's word falsely, or they themselves are teaching it falsely, we want to correct them. Their salvation can definitely depend on them. But that doesn't mean that membership in a particular church is going to damn them to hell right away or anything like that. The other side is what most of Christianity has done today. They just completely ignore the fellowship doctrine. Ah, God loves us, we can get his word wrong, doesn't matter. That would be antinomianism. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in both cases, when we got the word of God right, we have that full assurance that God is holy, we are not but God became a man and was holy for us in our place and has saved us and by has sent messengers to us and the Holy Spirit has worked through that message to engraft us to Christ and give us the new person. One last application I would like to give, and that's what we call adiaphrin. Adiaphrin, or as our German ancestors in Germany when the Reformation came, used the, the nice word, Mitteldinge. That means middle things. Things that are not commanded or forbidden in Scripture. What temperature we set the church for this morning. Believe me, I'm glad it wasn't seven degrees below zero. How we dress for church, and yes, there's a certain proprietary, and on a day as cold as today, we're definitely going to be wearing more layers. Whether we stand up or sit down, the hymns we sing, the time for our church, and yes, even if we socialize before church, or if we come in in piousness and reverence and stay quiet, these are all middle things. They are not commanded nor forbidden by God. So we'd better listen to God's word and say, Speak, O Savior, for your servant is listening. Traditions we have can be very, very helpful and actually ironed out by hardship and understanding and practical experience. But when those traditions stop serving to be that way, we dare not start treating them like they're the Word of God and turn into that legalist, that Pharisee, and make it sound like somebody's salvation depends on our kneeling or our crossing ourself or something like that. And yes, if we become superstitious with those things, then it may very well be that God's Word is telling us to stop those. Do we really say, Speak, O Lord, for your servant is listening? Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, it's impossible for our sinful nature to do this. It won't. It's it's the devil's playground there. But the good news is, God has done the impossible. God has created a new person in your heart. That new person is engrafted to Christ and loves to hear the Word of God. It's why you're here on this cold morning. And by your new man... You, like Samuel, are able to say and hear what God has to say. Speak, O Lord, for your servant is listening, and therefore you know him as your Savior. Amen. And now the brilliant light of Christ will continue to shine on our sin-enshrouded hearts, and his light will continue to guide our feet onto his path of peace. Amen.